Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. The book of Revelation, chapter 1. And we will read this morning verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I feel confident everybody knows where the book of Revelation is. If you don't, just go to the end of the Bible. So, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his inspired word. Let's pray together. Now, our Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads in your presence, as we prepare ourselves for your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be uh, of immense help to us, both in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. How we thank you for this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ given so long ago to, the serv- to his servant John. May we learn from this great book and help us, we pray, to draw nearer to our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are two essential things in trying to understand the Bible or to read the Bible that you need to always keep in mind. First of all, the Bible is comprised, as you know, of teaching or of doctrine. And especially when you read the New Testament, you read the Apostle Paul and his works, his letters are especially didactic. They are teaching doctrine, apostolic doctrine. And so it's very important that we understand and grasp apostolic doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God. But the other thing that is important for us as Christians is to know how to apply that teaching to our individual lives. And so we often talk about uh, the marriage between doctrine and application. We do not want Uh, all that we have to be just doctrine with no application, and neither do we want just all application with no doctrine. What we want is both doctrine and application married together. Let our doctrine be application, let our application be doctrine. When we come to the book of Revelation, which is this last book, this final book at the end of our Bibles, there is so much in this book that sometimes boggles our minds, confuses us, 
causes us misunderstandings, difficulties with how we are to interpret the Bible. And when we experience difficulties with what we read, we usually encounter difficulties as to how to apply the Word of God. So this is a book that, that as we know, is written in apocalyptic language, in prophetic language, sometimes very difficult to understand, and sometimes we grasp what the Apostle John is giving us of this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those books, if not the book for our times always. doesn't matter what century you live in. It was absolutely pertinent to the first century, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They needed to hear this message from Jesus. In fact, this book, the book of Revelation, is written specifically, primarily, of course, to those seven churches. And by extension, all Christians everywhere down through the ages even to ourselves this morning. So in our, in our consideration of this great book that we have been thinking about, and I must tell you that I have come to the preaching of the book of Revelation with much trepidation and with careful, as best I can, preparation regarding it, because it is not an easy book. In fact, I have spent years and years reading the book and still feel that I am not sure of all that it says and especially in the communicating of that, how difficult it is to communicate what John saw in those visions that Jesus gave him. So we have learned a number of things that largely reveal to us what this book of Revelation is about. In fact, the word revelation uh, simply points to that which is unfolded or unveiled or which is revealed to us. So what Jesus is giving uh, to these seven churches 2,000 years ago is a revelation, is a revealing from himself of how he views them, of their relationship to him, his relationship to them, their relationship to the world at large, which of course was a Roman world, a Roman empire that they lived in. Very different to how you and I find ourselves in this day and in this age. So when we come to this these opening verses. Let me point out a number of things to you. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3, we are told two things. John tells us two things. He tells us, first of all, in verse 1, that there are things that must take place soon. And when you read that, what you understand by that is that Jesus is revealing through the Apostle John things that are about to happen, things that must soon take place. That's the first thing that we are told here in this introduction. The second thing is in verse 3, when he says at the end of verse 3, for the time is near. Or to put it another way, there's an urgency about this book, about this revelation of Jesus to the seven churches. They need to, to hear, and when we look at both of those phrases, that the things that must soon take place and the time is near, we can see surely that the Apostle John or Jesus means for us to take them together. That there is a connection between the things that John sees, the things that must take place soon, because the time is urgent, the time is near. And that's, if the seven churches grasp that, they will certainly grasp the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to them, and we will understand the message of Jesus to them and also through them to us. And so this is why John 
writes this book. The time is urgent, and there are things that we need to know. The things that these seven churches know and need to know. We also know that what John saw, you'll notice he says in uh, verse 2, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all or to everything that he saw. That word saw is the, the word for the prophetic insight or vision that an Old Testament prophet, for instance, might have. So in the year King Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. It was a vision of glory that was given to the prophet. He saw that vision of the glory of God. And that's how John uses this. He is given visions that he sees, and it's all that he sees and all that he saw that he is communicating. If you look at verse 11, for example, Jesus says to John, write what you see in a book and then send it to these seven churches. And if you look at verse 19, and by the way, verse 19 is really the key verse to the book of Revelation. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So, existing things, things from the past, things that are now, and things that shall be. Why should John write those things, the things that he sees, because the time is short, the time is near, and all of these things are soon going to take place. And so to the seven churches in verse 11, write what you see, John. And what is revealed, and what is unveiled, and what John makes known is particular and specific to those seven churches as we find them there in verse 11, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So when we come to the book of Revelation, here's where you start. You start with the seven churches. And you must understand that everything in the book of Revelation is primarily for the seven churches. Most people today just take that what's written in the book of Revelation, no, yes, Jesus in chapter 2 and 3 said these things to the seven churches, but it's all for us. It's all for still way in the future. In fact, according to some people, these things haven't even taken place yet, many of them. And yet John says, the Lord Jesus through John says, these are things that are soon taking place. And if you are sitting in Ephesus as a Christian, or in Thyatira as a Christian, whether you are a boy, a girl, a man, or a woman, as a Christian you are listening to what Jesus is saying to you about things that are soon coming upon you, because you live in a world that is catastrophic and tragic and spiritually at war with you. And so it is not per se a book that we just put into the future, but is a very relevant, a very pertinent book for those seven churches who were struggling in their Christian experience and in their Christian life. And that leads me to the second point I want to make. The first is, of course, that these things soon take place, the time is near, but the second point I want to make by introduction is that the seven churches are engaged in spiritual warfare. Now, there is not a church, true church, that is not engaged in spiritual warfare. 
And by that I mean the church corporately and individually as Christians within a church, we experience spiritual war. I tried to show you last week from chapters 12 and chapters 13 that our great enemy, the dragon, the beast, of this entity that are opposed to God and opposed to Christ and opposed to the church and opposed to every individual Christian. And that's for the seven churches to think about. So they are at war, and as we saw, the roots of the spiritual war lie ultimately in Satan's rebellion against God. Satan's rebellion against God first in heaven, and then, of course, working out his rebellion against God uh, by taking assault upon the male child that was to be delivered by the woman, and then upon all the offspring of the male child whom we see to be the church, that this is Satan's activity, his war against them. Satan incites war. The dragon makes war. And he makes war against God and against Jesus and against the Christian. And we saw that, as I said, from this chapter 12 and chapter 13 of this book. Satan's war is not short term. He is interested in long term. That means if you are a Christian and for however long you have been a Christian, Satan is at war with you. And he is at war with you for as long as you are a Christian, which can only last till you die or you, Jesus comes. So for all that period of time, Satan is actively at war spiritually with you. What does he do? What does he do to us? He aims at unsettling us, at causing difficulties for us. He has two main weapons of warfare that he uses that I've introduced to you. These are the two weapons that confront, or the two problems that confront the seven churches, and I say confront every one of us today. The first problem is compromise. The second problem is contamination. Or to put it in the parlance of the Old Testament, it is idolatry or immorality. And there are many forms of idolatry and many forms of of immorality. You don't actually have to go out and commit physical immorality. You can have immorality right here in your mind and in your heart and be just as guilty of the actual sin as Jesus says. These are the sins that confront every Christian in every age and confronted the seven churches in the first century. Literally, what Satan desires is you give in or you give up. That's what he wants. You give in or you give up. And he launches this massive spiritual assault upon us. So Jesus writes through John this great book designed to be a warning to Christians, designed to be an encouragement to Christians in their spiritual war. That's the second thing. We're at war. Third, they can be encouraged, the seven churches, just like you and I can be encouraged. You know how? The Lamb has conquered. Jesus has won. Jesus is victorious over sin, over death. So the dragon and all of his cohorts, the beast and the second beast and all the false prophet, all of these that you read about, the dragon cannot win because of what our Lord Jesus Christ the Lamb has already accomplished. And so the victory is ours, not Satan's. And we must yield to that. In chapter 5, of course, you remember how in chapter 5 we saw the Lamb who was worthy 
to go up to God the Father sitting on his holy throne and reach out his hand and take the seven sealed scroll from the hand of God and then break the seven seals which are seven judgments to come upon the world to be uh, opened by the one who is worthy because of who Jesus is the root and of the tribe of Judah and the morning star and so on. In chapter 6 of course is the beginning of the enacting of the seven sealed scroll the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth, all being opened by the Lamb who conquered by His blood. So Revelation, this book, is the book about the triumph of the Lamb of God. It is a book about His victory over the dragon and everything else. Therefore, the seven churches and therefore every Christian is victorious because we are in Christ and He Himself has conquered through uh, his sacrifice at the cross. And so you find these various judgments unfolded in the book of Revelation, the, the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, all seven forms of similar judgments that are repeated to remind us of the certainty of the judgments that are coming upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgments, I, when I say that, I mean when the church is here judgments upon the enemy himself. Now you know, dear congregation, if you knew ahead of time that victory was yours, you would press on. If you knew ahead of time that victory has already been achieved, victory is already assured for you as a Christian, you would press on. No matter what. That's what Jesus wants the seven churches to know. I have achieved victory. I have overcome. I have conquered the dragon. And therefore you ought to think about that. And you ought to press on. And you ought to live your life in the light of my triumph and my victory. Too many Christians live their lives in the light of what Satan is doing. And not in the light of what Christ has truly done against the enemy himself even as well. And this overview now uh, brings us to this chapter, chapter 1, where we're introduced to the book. Notice verses 1 through 3, a general introduction. And then in verses 4 through 8, greetings to the seven churches, right? Notice verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And what we need to see when John writes this, think about yourself as John on the island of Patmos with your quill in your hand and the parchment in front of you. Think about this. John's introduction and John's greetings are because of the instructions that he receives in verses 9, 10, and 11. So look at 9. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. So now he's recounting to them where he was. He's on the island of Patmos. I was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, he tells them, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning I was worshiping and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see. And then send what you see to the seven churches. And he lists them as they are found there. 
So, John's greetings in his introduction, verses 4 through, through verse 8, are because of what he saw on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God and his testimony for Jesus. That's why he's there. And those instructions are to write what you see, John, and send it to these seven churches. Why should John do that? He writes because of the authority of the one who is revealing these things to him, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the Lamb who has conquered with all of his authority, it's because of that authority he orders John to write. So verse 12 through 20, the end of the chapter, I turned to see the voice, verse 12, that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus, of course. So, John writes because of what has been made known to him, and what has been made known to him has come from this one, this Son of Man, and we have this great description, don't we, in verses 12 and onwards all the way down. In fact, John's response is in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. That's victory, isn't it? I've conquered death. I've conquered Hades. And so John has rights on the authority of Christ. Now, you know, chapter 1, I think, is so helpful to us as Christians because it establishes boundaries for us. For instance, I think there's no question that the book of Revelation forbids you and forbids me to have flights of fancy about what is to come in the future. So, because I don't grasp, understand symbolic language or visions, the images that are portrayed here, which are very Old Testament-like, because I don't see that, I might let my mind wander into flights of fancy and come up with my own ideas about what John sees. And there's great danger in that. So, in my mind, the book of Revelation is there to guard me from those kinds of flights of fancy, and it prevents uncertainty in my heart. Now, that's all I've got to go with, right, dear brothers and sisters, with the Holy Spirit helping me, and you. You've got your mind and you've got your heart. You are reasoning, thinking people, and you are feeling people. John is no different. John is a man who has a mind and a heart, like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and so on. And so we are able to reason and to think about these things that are revealed, because we are meant to believe them within our hearts, and then as a response or a consequence of what has been shown to us, read by us, to live out like the seven churches are called upon. Remember how Jesus puts it to the seven churches, each church, to the one who has ears to hear. That's what you've got to do, right? Listen to what I'm saying. Hear the word. So, I think the book of Revelation is actually of benefit to us if we constrain or restrain our minds and our hearts and submit them to the authority of the word of God. Now, the book of Revelation, in my opinion, speaks a lot about historical events which are set within the framework of a covenant-keeping, faithful God, faithful to His people in visions, in symbols, in numbers, in language that is difficult for us to understand, and so on. 
That's why in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom to understand the mysteries that we find here. Now one thing I know about God's Word, though it can be difficult at times, it is meant to be understood by God's people. It is meant to be read by them and for them to digest it and think about it and meditate on it so that they can respond to it and live accordingly. So Daniel's prophecies, which in and of themselves are so similar to John's visions, yet we are designed, uh, God intends for us in looking at Daniel or Ezekiel to understand those prophecies. And that just requires time and effort for us to think about and to labor in them. And it's no different with this book of Revelation. The great difficulty you have, because I know you have it, because I have it, The great difficulty we all have in reading Revelation and trying to understand this book is that there is probably not one of us that approaches the book as a clean slate or without some form of bias. You have grown up perhaps in a church where it's told you certain things. You have learned a certain system of theology or eschatology. And now when you read the book of Revelation, you take that system and you put it on the book. And you see through the lens of your system, whatever the system might be, what this book is saying or what that's what it must mean. Because you're reading it through these uh, lenses that have come or that you have believed. It's a great danger in that, right? To impose something onto the text, which the text neither drives you to nor desires you to do, is then to read what you read through your own bias and through what you wanted to say to you. And so everyone, uh, no matter who you talk to, I think if you talk to any Christian, every Christian, they're going to have some form of understanding this book of Revelation. You talk to them about it, they're going to have some scheme that they're going to show you or reveal to you, some method of interpretation, so that they can make it understandable when they are questioned about it. That's why we often hear about premillennialists and amillennialists and postmillennialists. And we hear about things like preterism or partial preterism or historicists and idealists and futurists. And if you're not confused by all of those because you don't want to spend the time trying to understand all of those, which in and of themselves are, can be difficult to understand, for most of us those terms are, are meaningless. And what you do when you come to Revelation with those terms or frame of reference, you read this book like that. Now let me just say to you, if you're a Christian in Ephesus, or Thyatira, or Philadelphia, you don't have these schemes. You don't have these schemes. You've got nothing. You've just got Jesus' word to you. Very relevant, very pertinent, because the time is short and the time is near. So you better listen, Jesus says. So we must be so careful because we're so far down the line and according to some, none of these things have happened. According to others, many of these things have happened. And according to some others, they are happening. So you're left confused by what this book is saying. So we have to be careful. Like any other book in the Bible, like words in the Bible mean something. And we must pay attention to those. So it's easy to bring, for me to bring, and for you to bring, your preconceived ideas and put it on the book. And voila! That must be the interpretation. So, what we really must do is read this book prayerfully and read this book carefully 
and devotionally and try to discern the message of Jesus to those seven churches. So Revelation 2 and 3 about the seven churches individually is very important to knowing that. But let's take this step back because here we are in chapter 1. John greets the seven churches. What I want you to notice about the greeting of John, first of all, is that it is Trinitarian. It is Trinitarian, right? So verse 4, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from, notice the and, and from, second person, the seven spirits who are before His throne, and, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So it involves God, verse 4, who is described as Him who is and who was and who is to come, which conjures up in your mind eternity. Always existing, right? The eternal God. And by the way, I want to spend some time later on in another sermon considering these descriptions of God and of the Spirit and of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all grounded and come from the Old Testament Scriptures. Notice the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before His throne. We saw that in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 in the throne room of God in heaven. And then from Jesus Himself in verse 5 who is called the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. All from the Old Testament Scriptures. So verse 4 and verse 5 are a description of the one who gives grace and peace. It is from the Father, it is from the Son, and it is from the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice that grace and peace are essentially the, at the heart of the gospel, aren't they? I mean, isn't that what the gospel is about? The grace of God and the peace of God that comes to us? And so, when John sends this typical kind of greeting, verse 4, grace to you and peace, like the Apostle Paul does so often, grace to you and peace, right? From God our Father, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is at the heart of the gospel. There is no gospel without grace. There is no gospel without peace. It is the grace of God and it is the peace of God that comes to us from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to notice, as I've mentioned already, is that these are really descriptions from the Old Testament. You know, this book, the book of Revelation, is loaded with Old Testament allusions. Some very clear, direct allusions straight out of the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Revelation has more Old Testament allusions than the entire New Testament put together. So you ought to know your Old Testament. Now John knows his Old Testament. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. He's a Jew. He grew up in the Old Testament. He's familiar with it. Daniel was familiar with it. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They grew up with the law of God and the covenants of God. They understood these things. They were riveted in the Old Testament. And isn't the heart of the message of the Old Testament just simply this? Thus says the Lord. That's the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Book of Revelation. Thus says Jesus. The Lord. 
And so here, as we, we come to this book, we must bear in mind that saturated underneath are all of these Old Testament allusions. There are some direct quotations, it's true. But so, many of, so much of this book is just these allusions. Now what John does, now here's the thing. What John does is he takes the narrow sense of the Old Testament scripture that when I say narrow, narrow because it's applied to Israel only, the nation, the people of God. He takes that narrow sense that you read about so often in the Old Testament and he gives it then a much wider application. So let me show you that because I know you want me to prove that. So here it is. Look at verse 6. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that our Lord Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Now you know where that comes from? That comes from Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. Where God, just before he gives the moral law, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, is describing himself. And he's describing his relationship to his people. And he's telling his people in Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. But what does John do in verse 6? John, in verse 6, applies it to the church. He just takes it out of Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church. By the way, you can read Simon Peter. He does the same in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, royal people, and so on. And by the way, if you look at chapter 5 of Revelation, just turn over there, verse 10. Revelation 5 verse 10. Here's the new song, right? By the, the four and twenty elders and the, uh, and the four living creatures, they sang a new song, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So notice in verse 10 of chapter 5, you have made them a kingdom and priest to God and they shall reign on the earth. Well, who will reign on the earth, John? Look at verse 9, chapter 5. These are all those who are ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. So who is in the kingdom? Who are these kingdom of priests? All people ransomed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So now, having said that, of course, I'm going to deal with that at a later stage because uh, it's just not what I want to draw your attention to this morning. What I want you to see this morning is the end of verse 5. What a precious verse. End of verse 5, To him who loves us and has freed us or loosed us or released us. If you have the King James or New King James, it says washed us. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that's grace and peace right there, right? So having given us this marvelous description 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does John say about him? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then the end, of course, applies at the end of verse 6. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So his description of Jesus, faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, simply establishes the Lord Jesus Christ as the absolute sovereign over everyone, over everything, sovereign over all kings, sovereign over all death, sovereign over the world, sovereign over the church, sovereign over his people. And not only is he absolutely sovereign, but he's the absolute truth, because he's the word of God to us. Revelation 19 says, in that vision about the one riding on the white horse, his name is the Word of God. Doesn't John himself tell us uh, in John 1.14, the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So, Here's a picture that is painted of Jesus as the conqueror, as the ruler, as the king of all the world. And he has a kingdom, and he has made us part of that kingdom. And how are we part of that kingdom? He tells us that we have been ransomed, ransomed from somewhere, ransomed from the world, redeemed out of our sins, and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, out of the kingdom of the dragon and into the kingdom of the Lamb. Right? So what a beautiful picture that is for us as Christians. If you're in the first century, what an encouragement to you. Gives me confidence to face the world. Because Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is the Lamb. Why should I fear? Jesus has conquered. Jesus rules over the kings of the world. Jesus reigns over all the nations. What do you have to fear? Right? He's taken away the power of death and the power of Hades. He has set his people free. Free from their sins, from their slavery, from their bondage to the dragon. Free. Think about it. Why? Because he loves us and he has freed us. Who is this Jesus Christ? Who is he? He's the eternal God, God the Son. And he takes flesh to himself to deliver us, to free us, to forgive us. You know, all the kingdoms of this world, all of them that have ever been, and all perhaps that will be tomorrow, all the kings that have ruled, they are ruled by Jesus ultimately. In fact, Revelation 12, 5, he rules all the nations. Revelation 19, 15, he strikes down the nations. So whatever is thrown at us today, like the seven churches 2,000 years ago, whatever is thrown at us from the dragon, from whatever spiritual enemy we have, whatever is thrown at us cannot prevail. Because Jesus is the King and rules. Now if you have a vision or a thought or an interpretation that Jesus is only going to be King in some future day, when he supposedly will come back and rule and reign. But not now, right now, he's not the king. That is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible because, I'll tell you why, when Jesus ascended into glory, 
He is received into glory with vindication and is exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high where he ever lives and is putting all of his enemies under his feet. And when the last one is done, the trumpet shall sound and Jesus shall come in great glory and great power to judge the world and to save his people a second time, truly, finally, and take them to his home. A home he's prepared for you and for me. Don't you love the word of God when it tells you these things, right? What an encouragement to us. So I don't care really what's thrown at me because Jesus rules. Because Jesus reigns. We are safe in this world because of Christ who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 17 verse 4, 14 I should say and Revelation 19 verse 16. So notice at the end of verse 5 It's John the Apostle who addresses Jesus to him. To him. What does that word or phrase, to him, mean? That's an ascription of praise. That's a declaration of who he's talking about. It's a pointer. You know, like you're driving along and you see a a, a road sign that points this way. Well, you know, that's the way I've got to go. That's what John is doing. Let me point you at the one who loves us and who has freed us to him. I'm talking about the faithful witness. I'm talking about the firstborn of the dead. I'm talking about the ruler of all the nations. That's what John says to him, to that one. I'm pointing you towards him. Will you notice there are two things about Jesus in verse 5, right? To put it in English today, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So Jesus loves me, number one. And number two, Jesus has loosed me. Jesus has freed me, right? Will you notice the language of John? To him who loves us and has freed us. John, the seven churches and all believers in the Lamb. Jesus loves us and he has freed us. It's specific, it's particular, it's us. Those who love the Lamb those who believe the Lamb. Not only that, but will you notice that the tenses, and these tenses are very important in this verse, loves us is the present tense, and loosed us or freed us is the past tense. So one continues right now, and the other is finished. So Jesus loves me, is now and always, and Jesus has freed me from my sins is past done accomplished so one continues and the other is over so the love of Jesus for you for me is right now he loves us right now he loves the seven churches right now as John writes to them at this very moment Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you at this very moment and he continues to love us it's not, you know, this is not the, like the love of men. We love today and tomorrow we don't. No, this is love that is fixed, that is rooted in eternity, in a covenant compact between father and son, where a people are given to the son, and the son says, I will go and I will redeem them, I will save those people. And he does. And he has freed us. That's what John says. So he has accomplished atonement. He has loosed us. So will you notice 
not just the tenses, but the, the secondly, will you notice that he loves us is a relationship, and he has freed us is redemption, ransom. And I want you to notice this. You must notice that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you, and as a consequence of his love, he has freed you. It is because he loves you that he has freed you. He doesn't make redemption and then love you. He loves you and makes redemption and he continues to love those for whom he dies. He frees us. He dies for us because he loves us. And will you notice he frees us from what? From our sins. From our sins. Now you know the problem we often have with understanding that is that it's because we just don't, or we try to feel that we ourselves must contribute to this deliverance. It's Jesus who frees you. You don't free yourself. You don't contribute to your freedom. You were nowhere near alive when Jesus died on the cross. You contribute nothing. He did it. He paid for our sins. So while we were in our sins, when we were in our sins, Jesus loved us. Jesus loved us. Our salvation then springs from the love of God. Our salvation springs from this love of the Lord Jesus. This is not some general kind of salvation that is offered today in vast American worldwide evangelical churches. Generic. No, it's not generic. It's specific. It's us. It's you. It's the people of God. Those ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. It's them. In fact, when we talk about the doctrine of election, which the Bible talks about, election is grounded in the love of God. It's because God loved that he chose. Because he loved. So God does not love us because he chose us. He chose us because he loves us. So that at the fountainhead of all the decrees and decisions of God is this God who loves his people. And everything he has done and is doing to the end of time is for those people whom he gave to his son who came and died for them and secured their salvation and provided salvation. And the Holy Spirit in time, whenever you are alive, whatever time it is, brings conviction into your life, brings you, draws you, calls you to Jesus and then you fall down and confess and say, I believe. And it was God who did it. Because God loves us, he gave us his son as a gift. I mean, that's what grace is all about, right? It's a gift to us. We don't merit it, you don't deserve it, it's free. It's given to us. He gave our Lord Jesus Christ as a gift to the bride, to his bride, to save us, notice, from our sins. What does Jesus do? He delivers us from the dominion and power of sin. Because you know what? You can't do it by yourself. This is the reason so many people struggle with the doctrine of salvation. Because they don't understand what Jesus has done. They struggle with this doctrinal concept of assurance. Because they don't really grasp that Jesus has done it. Finished. You can't do it. You can never do it. He has accomplished it. He has done it, right? Save us from our sins. That's salvation. 
He's not saving you to be a better person. He's not saving you to, to affect society. He's saving you because He loved you and He delivers you from that which you are in bondage to and can never free yourself. Your sin. Jesus comes, frees you from the shackles of your sin. What a gospel. Right? What a triumph. This love of Jesus, by the way, notice in the present tense, who loves us, is continual and abiding forever and ever. But the loosing, the freeing, is done at the cross. Done at the cross. We are no longer under the dominion of sin because of the blood of the Lamb shed at the cross. You either believe that or you don't. You either say that just can't apply to me because I'm so bad. Guess what? It applies to the worst of us. To the chiefest of sinners. Which we are. That's why Jesus loves us. You can do nothing for yourself. He loves us. And He looses us. You know what that means for you as a Christian? The fact that Jesus loosed you. And the fact that Jesus loves you presently. You know what that means for you as a believer? It means you can overcome your sins. You're no longer in bondage to them. You're no longer a slave living in sin's dominion or Satan's dominion. You've been taken out of that kingdom. Yanked out of it, if you like. Shockingly, right? And put into Christ's kingdom where there is freedom. No bondage. No slavery. Just total freedom. Based on what? The love of Christ for us and the loosing of Christ done in accomplishing us to be delivered from our sins. Or to put it like the New Testament puts it, you have new life. The old is past. We are a new creation. The old is gone, Paul tells us. And as Revelation 12 verse 11 reminds us, we have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus shed for us. Notice, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, by his death, by his sacrifice, freed us. You know what it means to be free from your sins? It means to be forgiven. Forgiven. Isn't forgiveness one of the great issues people struggle with? Forgiving each other, right? Believing that Jesus has forgiven me, believing that Jesus has loved me. People struggle with that concept, can't grasp it. But yet that's the heart of the gospel. That's what Jesus says. I love you. And I've loosed you. I've set you free. You are mine. Mine. In my kingdom. And no one can pluck you from my Father's hand or from my hand. So, to be freed is to be forgiven. And forgiveness requires sacrifice. Who made the sacrifice? Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, right, there can be what? No forgiveness of sins. So Jesus sheds his blood so that my sins are forgiven. Or as the King James, New King James says, he has washed us clean. Clean. Now you know what? I'm still in this body. I've still got a sin principle working that war within me, raging. I yield to sin. But you know what? He's freed me. This freedom here is not perfection. This is freedom from the condemnation, ultimately, of my sins against me. Free. But the personal freedom of it is worked out within my life in sanctification and it is strengthened by the knowledge that Jesus loves me. 
That's what motivates me to, to live my Christian life. Jesus loves me. When I sin, Jesus doesn't hate me. Jesus loves me. And the, the return to Christ is easy if you confess your sins. He is faithful and just. Why? Because of the freedom Jesus purchased for us. God is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. To cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And that, that can happen a hundred times a day because He loosed us and He freed us once for all from the bondage of our sins. He freed us from our sins because He loved us and loves us. We get so hung up on the doctrinal ins and outs of various points of theology. When Karl Barth, the liberal or neo-orthodox theologian, was asked what was the gospel, shockingly he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. That's the right answer to the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you? Do you know that Jesus loves you? You know it. Because he's forgiven you. And how do you know he's forgiven you? He's freed us from our sins by his blood at the cross. This is what this gospel is. So Jesus, who loves us and who continues to love us, came into this world to redeem us. In other words, there's a purpose to the death of Jesus. It's not just an accident. Of course, there are no accidents with God. God's in control of all things. He's even in control of the death of his son. In fact, Jesus is handed over by the foreknowledge of God, by the predetermined plan of God. So when people talk about unfairness or, or evil, think about what God did to His Son. He handed Him over. He gave Him over to death. Freely. Why? Because He loves. And in the giving of His Son for us, He freed us from our sins. So this purpose... Those whom he loves, he looses. So Philip H. Hughes says this, and I like this. He says, the love of Jesus is constant, and it is ever-present. It precedes the cross, and it continues after the cross, and it embraces us in our sins every day. It embraces us in our sin before we were believers, and it remains with us every day to the end. The love of Jesus. Paul says this, he puts it like this, Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Or as John puts it in 1 John 4, and verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us and then sent his Son to accomplish redemption on our behalf. How can you be sure? And how can I be sure that I'm loved? How can I know that Jesus loves me? Paul says in Romans chapter 8. That God did not spare his son. But gave him up for us all. Because God says it. That's why. How is this love of the Lord Jesus beneficial to me? Because that's what I want to know today. I mean, everybody talks about their salvation. Well, it happened there. It's true. It does. And there, you were conscious of your love for Christ. In fact, the church at Ephesus has a problem with their love, doesn't it? With their first love, you've left it. You've forgotten 
what Jesus, what it was like to love Christ and to know that Christ loved you. You've, you've turned away from that. You're taken up with doctrine. And they were. And they were so good. And Jesus commends them for that. But this I have against you. You have left your first love. Oh, how easy it is to do that. You've got the world to face, right, every day. You've got the flesh to fight all the time. You've got what you have and what you want to allure you all the time. John says, Jesus says, don't give in. Don't compromise. and Don't be like the world. Don't contaminate yourself with the world. Be my people. Jesus loved us and Jesus loves us so much that he provided a one-time sacrifice in which he has conquered sin forever. So it is in my, conf- in my conflict that I have confidence because John tells me Jesus loves me right now, now, this moment. Is that something that's hypothetical or theoretical to you? Or is that a living, real relationship between you and this Lord Jesus Christ? The seven churches are struggling with sin. They're struggling to, to maintain a testimony in the Roman Empire in the first century. Do you find yourself compromising or being contaminated with the world? You have to face that every day. Do you find yourself already you've compromised? Already you have contaminated yourself? Do you know what the answer is? Jesus has already made sacrifice for all of your sins. He has made atonement. He has satisfied the justice of God. How did he do it? With his blood. With his blood. God is satisfied with Jesus. And if God the Father is satisfied with God the Son's death on the cross, why are we not? If we say we believe in God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this forgiveness of God, this freedom, He has freed us from our sins by His blood, is full, total, complete, and absolutely just. Because Jesus took my place. Because I ought to have died. But He died to set me free. That's the gospel, right? My sins are washed away. Do you know that John tells the seven churches, or Jesus tells them, that the way you overcome is always by the blood of the Lamb? What does that mean? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. So no matter my sins, and there are going to be many sins, and there are going to be great sins, there are going to be troublesome times, atonement has been made. And doesn't have to be made again. That's the Old Testament. You have to offer lamb, 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 bull, bull, bull. The blood of bulls and goats cannot bring forgiveness of sins, only the blood of this lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I sin today, His blood avails, because it's an accomplished work. His blood avails for me, and guess what? He still loves me. He still loves me. Isn't that a great motivation, right? To know that He loves me, because I'm going to sin, and I do. And I want to hate sin and fight against sin. And yet I fall into sin and Jesus loves me and loves me and loves me and loves me. We're not saved. And we can never be saved by going to church. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you are here this morning does not mean you're a Christian. 
Just because you are, have grown up in a church and you think you are a Christian does not make you a Christian. You are not saved by being a moral person. You can't be a moral person. You're a sinner. And you're only saved by grace. You are not a Christian by baptism. Nobody has become a Christian by being baptized. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody has become a Christian by doing good things. Visiting the poor. Whatever it is. Nobody has become a Christian by doing that. Nobody has become a Christian because they're in a Christian family. Nobody has become a Christian by the decree of the church. No. You are a Christian because Jesus loves you and has loosed you from your sins by His blood. That's what you believe. Or do you? Truly? I fear that these are many things that that the church of today is trusting in. They don't save you. It's only Christ that saves. So to be born again means I must come to my senses like the prodigal son. I must come to my senses and I must see myself for what I am and then I go to Christ. I go to Jesus and I confess my sins to Him that I am a sinner and I believe what He has done for me. And Then I discover to myself that Jesus loves me. Truly loves me because He laid down His life for me. And not only in the laying down of his life does he prove his love for me, but he frees me from my sins. I cannot comprehend the love of Christ or the love of God, but it constrains me and it controls me and it compels me every day. So I must go out now and live this life, right? Of freedom. Under the love of Jesus. Go out and live it. John will tell you. The seven churches. Go out there into the Roman Empire. Face the dragon. Face the beast. Live for Jesus. So the Christian then is somebody who has received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and has the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or someone who truly believes the gospel. The gospel of Christ. Knows the love of Jesus for them and knows the joy of having their sins truly forgiven, and the ongoing relationship of love from Christ, because He has loved us from eternity unto eternity, and He has proven it by laying down His life and delivering us, setting us free from the power and the bondage and the condemnation of our sins. Praise the Lord for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, now we thank you for your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us and has loosed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to you, our God. And we thank you for that. To him then alone be all the dominion and all the power and all the glory forever and forever. Thank you for the Lamb who sacrificed himself to redeem his people to himself. Thank you that you have chosen us and made us your people. Help us now to live lives in the victory of Christ, in the triumph of the Lamb. Let us not be afraid of this world, but live in Christ, trusting in him. So we commit ourselves to you now and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.